2: Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight, one day after the first anniversary of January 6th, the insurrection with a country that's facing a clear and present danger. Our democracy is teetering towards non-existence because one of our two major political parties is entirely defined by its obsequiousness to its dear leader, terrified of what will happen if they stray too far from his side. Take Rafael Ted Cruz, an entire senator from Texas who made the mistake of, drum roll, telling the truth about January 6th on the anniversary.
1: We are approaching a solemn anniversary this week, uh, and it is an anniversary of a violent terrorist attack on the Capitol, where we saw the men and women of law enforcement demonstrate incredible courage.
2: Oh, that did not sit sit well with the MAGA cult, including Trump's TV underboss, Tuckums who has made telling his elderly Fox viewers that what they want to hear, that actually not a lot happened on January 6th, into an entire programming mantra, coddling them by claiming, including with a fake documentary, that it was just a totally normal day at our nation's capital, with a wee self-guided tour included. Predictably, Tuckums tore into Cruz on his show Wednesday night, reiterating his MAGA-petting shtick that it was definitely not a violent terrorist attack. But Cruz... Cruz couldn't handle handle Mango Mussolini's base being mad at him. So he went on Fox to bend the knee and clear the air and ran straight into a hailstorm.
1: The way I phrased things yesterday, it it was sloppy and and it was frankly dumb. And I don't buy that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, I don't buy that. Look, I've known you a long time since before you went to the Senate. You are a Supreme Court contender. You take words as seriously as any man who's ever served in the Senate. And every word you repeated that phrase, I do not believe that you used that accidentally. I just don't. So, Tucker, as a result of my sloppy phrasing, it's caused a lot of people to misunderstand what I meant. What I was referring to are are the limited number of people who engaged in violent attacks against police officers. I wasn't saying the millions of of, of patriots across the country supporting President Trump are terrorists.
2: But here's the thing, Rafaelito. That Mia culpa isn't just pathetic. It is also flat out false. Cruz has frequently referred to January six as a terrorist attack, including in at least three press releases issued last January, February, and May. He's also said it in multiple tweets, which Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger trolled him for today. Now, for many people familiar with Game of Thrones... Watching poor little crew squirm and beg for forgiveness immediately brought to mind the subjugation of Lord Theon Greyjoy, who was forcibly relieved of his literal manhood, his identity, and then his name.
3: What's your name? Theon Greyjoy. <laughs> What is your name?
2: Ted Cruz, a.k.a. Reek, once called Donald Trump a sniveling coward for calling his wife ugly and implying that his father murdered JFK during their fight for the 2016 nomination. But Trump has thoroughly defeated him again because Teddy the Weak is clearly the sniveling coward. Oh, but it's not just the man who ran to Cabo and blamed it on his kids during an epic snowstorm. Oh, no, the Republican Party is in a place where if you don't downplay or straight up deny the insurrection, in other words, if you refuse to be a sniveling coward and a Trump bootlicker, you are not welcome. We've gone over little Kevin McCarthy's spineless hypocrisy numerous times, going from saying Trump bears responsibility for January 6th to whining that Democrats are supposedly using the anniversary as a partisan political weapon. On January 7th last year, Trump's favorite caddy, Lindsey Graham, was condemning his boss man for pushing the idea that the vice president could and should disenfranchise 150 million voters. But within a matter of months, he was back to groveling too and portraying Trump as the savior of the party.
1: All I can say is uh, count me out. Enough is enough. If you're a conservative, this is the most offensive concept in the world that a single person could disenfranchise 155 million people. I would just say to my Republican colleagues, can we move forward uh, without President Trump? The answer is no.
2: It's like, is Donald Trump going to paddle me? Let me just hurry up and and change my mind. This group think is so thorough. The only Republicans to show up to the House's commemoration of January 6th yesterday were Liz Cheney and her father Dick, the Iraq war, we got to go on the dark side torture guy. Now, as my friend and colleague Eamon Moyadeen tweeted, just imagine for a moment if Republicans had decided to skip all of the commemorations on the first anniversary of the September 11th attacks. What message would that have sent? I am joined now by Mary Trump, Donald Trump's niece and host of the new podcast, The Mary Trump Show, and Kurt Bardella, advisor to the DNC and the DCCC. Listen, we can have a lot of fun with uh, with Rick um, Cruz, but it's not just him. Let, let me play Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham, who's also called the is terrorists. I wonder how long it's gonna take him to have to run onto Tuckum's show and beg for forgiveness too. Here's Lindsay.
1: The first thing that stands out to me is how embarrassed and disgusted I am that the United States Capitol could be taken over by domestic terrorists, that a band of people who are terrorists, not patriots, literally occupied the floor of the house, drove the Senate out of its chamber, And the question for the country is, how could that happen 20 years after 9-11?
2: Kurt, you know, the thing that's so amazing is that Lindsey Graham, with that moment of clarity that was on January 7th and his moment of clarity on January 6th was the only time I've ever seen Lindsey Graham be sort of an independent human being. I mean, he's clearly a follower um, and he went right back to. The bootlicking after that, what happens to a person? Where does your soul have to go, I wonder, for somebody to go from speaking the obvious truth about an insurrection to turning into a sniveling coward, to use Raphael's phrase?
0: Uh, I think much like Theon Greyjoy, who turned into reek, these these men have become dominated they have become broken. They've become shadows of the men they once held themselves up to be. It is embarrassing the lengths to which they are going right now, tripping over themselves, asking for forgiveness for making the mistake of telling the truth. And that's how you join. that just tells you how far gone things are. Telling the truth right now is a mortal sin in the Republican Party. What we saw from President Biden on January 6th yesterday, and I saw a lot of headlines that said, Biden blames Trump. Biden takes on Trump. That's not what happened here, Joy. We had a president of the United States tell the truth about what happened on January 6th, period, full stop. That's it. Truth telling. And that's really what's at stake right now. We have one party that has voluntarily divorced itself from reality, who has withdrawn from democracy. And we have another that is determined to keep truth and fact and democracy at the heart of its political future. And that's the choice that voters are going to have to make going forward because we are now in the ninth inning here, Joy. This isn't early games. This isn't early times. This is the bottom of the ninth as we're coming up on. And if Republicans are allowed to take any part of control back, they will run out the clock on democracy and we will not have much left after that.
2: You know, and, and Mary Trump, the challenge is, right, I sort of am against sort of the deification of presidents anyway, right? But there, the Republicans are not taking the knee to a, a, an Abraham Lincoln who saved the Union or Dwight David Eisenhower who was a war hero. They're not, it's to Donald Trump, your uncle, who you've written an extensive book about. This is not a great man. He's not a learned man. He's not an awfully lucid man half the time. What he is is a mean man. Let's play some of the times that he is gone after reek Cruz. Here that is.
1: One of the problems with Ted Cruz is everybody hates him. I mean, he's such a nasty guy. Everybody hates him. He's a nasty guy. Nobody likes him. Nobody in Congress likes him. Nobody likes him anywhere. Once they get to know him. Lion Ted comes in and he holds the Bible up and he holds it high, right? He holds it high. And then he lies. He lies. He's an anchor baby. No, he's an anchor baby. Ted Cruz is an anchor baby in Canada. His father was with Lee Harvey Oswald prior to Oswald's being, uh, you know, shot. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous.
2: You know, Mary, Trim, uh, the Theon Greyjoy in this movie was literally sheared of his manhood. I, I'm, it, it feels that Reek is the right name of the character for Ted Cruz because he has—how he, does your uncle manage to strip grown men— of their manhood that easily. What is it that he has over these people? Those clips were
4: astonishing because of their incredible mixture of truth telling, projection, racism, and mendacity. Like we have all of it there, you know, and I (laughs) honestly, I don't necessarily think it's a hold so much as the Republican party made a calculation as they have in the past that they could use this, person to advance their their agenda, right? And then they lose control and then they have no choice but to accommodate the monster. So one of the things that surprised me, uh, because that doesn't because I think that's been true since, say, the Tea Party, if not earlier. But what does surprise me is that Donald is the weakest person I've ever met in my life. And yet he has been able to find people even weaker than he is whom he is able to bend to his will. And considering, as you said, he's not smart, he's not strong, he's not anything one would aspire to be, they still do see him as a means to an end. And, um, you know, in the, in the case of Cruz and, and Graham, for example, I think they're arrogant enough to think they can have it both ways, but debased enough not to mind when they have to demean themselves to somebody as weak as Donald Trump.
2: It it is astonishing to watch, Kurt, you know, because the the Republican Party has sort of predicated itself. People like Josh Hawley, which actually makes me laugh whenever I say that and the word manliness in the same sentence, because he's like the chinless (laughs) wonder. But they've sort of like, sort of grounded themselves in this particular idea of what manhood is supposed to be like, right? But every one of them is the opposite of it. They all kneel to Trump. They couldn't even manage to show up at at the commemoration of an event that was a violence against themselves, against their own staffs. They were running from these terrorists that day. They weren't like shaking hands with them, uh, except for one. Uh, Kevin McCarthy staffer, Ryan O'Toole, ha- has said yesterday that there was one congressman who was actually cheering the insurrectionists on that day. Listen to this.
1: You did have some members express a different view. Uh, one member, Mo Brooks, for example, uh, was was glad he was cheering on uh, the fact that the 117th Congress had started this way. Uh, and that was that was much to dismay of others in the room. And uh, and certainly, I think, does not carry the sentiment that the day has today.
2: And, and you know, Kurt, I, I note that cheering them mm-hmm. on while still running away. Mo Brooks didn't go out there and meet these people out and uh, and join them. He didn't have the courage to do that, but he was cheering them on while fleeing (laughs) your thoughts.
5: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: And that's one of the things we we, have spent a lot of time and we will be spending a lot of time talking about the minute to minute movements of Donald Trump during all of this. But what about people like Mo Brooks or Paul Gosar or Jim Jordan or Josh Hawley? What were they all doing during this whole situation? Because running, we saw the picture of the before Holly, holding up his arm, cheering him on. But Deering, they were nowhere to be seen. They were hiding. They were praying to God that the Capitol Police force that was there will be able to hold the line. It is such a, a paradigm here. It's always do as I say, not as I do. It's always, yeah, we love these insurrectionists, these patriots. If they come within three feet of me, I'm running the other way around the door, hiding, barricading as much as I can. They are terrified of their own voters. And the fact that going back to Donald Trump, you know, he is the useful idiot here. He is not someone to be feared. He is not someone that can hold power over you. He is a useful idiot, an instrument that the Republican Party has decided to make their, their, their mascot so that they can actually get through the radical racist extreme agenda.
2: It's interesting because now let me just play. This is what the Republican Party now stands for full stop. And this is what is frightening for us for democracy, because we can giggle at them and they are a bit wimpy and weird. But this is the danger. Let's play a little bit of their denialism of the fact of the 2020 election result.
3: I knew those are people that love this country, that uh truly respect law enforcement, would never do anything to to break a law.
0: If you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit.
1: The question of whether or not the FBI animated some of the criminal conduct is one that is far more grave.
4: The people who breached the Capitol on
1: January 6th are being abused. We have in this city political prisoners held hostage by their own government.
2: We could throw in Lauren Boebert, who tweeted that morning today is 1776. Um, your thoughts on the danger of this comical crew of l- losers in any other forum, except in the Republican parties. That's the leadership.
6: Yeah,
4: well, I think it was uh, uh, a Swal- Swalwell who said that if these hadn't been members of Congress, they would have been on the other side of the doors trying to break in and overturn our government from without. So uh, I actually don't think it's funny anymore. I don't think they're laughable anymore. We, We mock them at our peril because as undeserving and grotesque as they may be, they are the mainstream of the Republican Party right now. And they have, sadly to say, Legitimate power within the Republican Party, and that is dangerous. That is something we have to guard against, and that is something we need to take very, very, very seriously. Because, as Kurt said earlier, the clock is ticking. You know, we are not at the beginning of this game; we're at the end of it, and it may very well end in November 2022 unless we pull out all of the stops to prevent it.
2: Yeah, this is absolutely true, uh, Kurt. Because you you advise the DCCC. The reality is that cast of characters that I just played a montage of, that will be the leadership of our government if the Republicans take over the House and Senate. Full stop, period. That's the leadership. And and I wonder if the party is worried enough about that. The Democrats, I mean.
0: Well, you know, Joy, for the first time, I'll say that I think so. And I based that on Joe Biden's speech yesterday. This was the first time that we've seen President Biden take that posture that tone, being that direct and confrontational with the anti-democratic forces that have overrun the Republican Party. Like all political parties, we, we you know we, we take our cues from the top. President Biden made it very clear what the stakes are right now. He made it very clear what needs to happen going forward in order to heal this country. We need to first confront the truth of what's going on right now and who's been fueling these crazy conspiracy theories, these lies that have turned into violence. And so taking our cue from President Biden after the speech that he delivered and the speech that Vice President Harris delivered yesterday, I think that Democrats do realize the gravity of what's ahead and how important it is that we do everything that we humanly can to ensure that we are able to maintain the balance of power. Because if we surrender, the Republicans will never give it back ever again.
2: That's right. Absolutely. There's a term called cacistocracy, government by the worst possible people. That's what we will have, as well as a heavy heaping of fascism, should they take over. Be afraid. It's Scaring is caring. Uh, Mary Trump, Kurt Bardella, thank you both very much. Up next on the readout, House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn joins me as the White House gets ready to make a new push to pass voting rights legislation. Also, it looks like the six right-wing Supreme Court justices believe that freedom includes the freedom to get sick with COVID and the freedom to spread it to other people. Plus...
6: Oh, he's such a gentleman, a true gentleman
2: and um, kind and he loved to laugh. My conversation with musical icon Dionne Warwick about the passing of a giant, Sidney Poitier, the first black man to win a Best Actor Oscar. The readout continues after this.
5: we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future.
2: It is not just the Republican Party that can't handle the truth about non-existent voter fraud. The Cyber Ninjas, the firm behind Arizona's bogus election fraud, it is now shutting its doors. Now, you remember, they reviewed millions of ballots at the request of Arizona state Republicans in an effort to find fraudulent votes that did not exist in Arizona's biggest and most racially diverse county, Maricopa. This week, county officials released a point by point takedown of the cyber ninjas claims, finding nearly everyone to be misleading, inaccurate or false. Arizona was ground zero for efforts to push the big lie and remains so. The biggest loser is headed there for a rally next week on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s actual birthday. As the man who won the 2020 election, President Biden, makes a full throated call to action on voting rights, raising the stakes in his remarks on the January 6th anniversary. Right
3: now, in state after state, new laws are being written, not to protect the vote, but to deny it. Not only to suppress the vote, but to subvert it. Not to strengthen and protect our democracy. But because the former president lost, it's wrong, it's undemocratic, and frankly, it's un-American.
2: The president and vice president, uh, Harris, will travel to Atlanta next week to call for the passage of two bills, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. The Senate could advance the Freedom to Vote Act as early as next week ahead of an MLK day deadline for a vote to change Senate filibuster rules in the face of Republican obstruction. And joining me now is House Majority Whip Congressman Jim Clyburn of South Carolina. Happy New Year, uh, Whip Clyburn. But let's talk about this. Uh, You wrote uh, an op-ed and it was talking about what you called the tyranny faith threatening America. And you write 50 Republicans in the United States Senate aided and abetted by two Democrats are blocking votes on two critical voting rights bills. I'm not a fan of the filibuster, but if holding on to that tradition is important to most of the Senate, I maintain that exceptions on constitutional issues like voting should apply. We know that no less than Bill Clinton, Oprah Winfrey, um, and, and many, many other celebrities have, have tried to talk to Joe Manchin. He's been inundated with people coming to him. Tim Kaine um, likened the effort to his 27-hour drive to Washington earlier this week after the snowstorm, slow progress toward a goal like my commute. Nothing is working. So what do we do if Manchin won't budge and if cinema won't budge? Well, first of all,
3: happy new year to you as well, and thank you very much uh, for having me. Well, I think that all of us are aware uh, that the Senate is pretty high on tradition, and I have no problem with that. Uh, Joe Biden has been a large part of that for a long time. He and Joe Manchin are very good friends. I'm suspected that they are in communication, at least I hope that they are, I do believe that Joe Manchin is very proud of his record uh, in West Virginia and in the country, and I don't believe he would like to see that record solid by going down in history as one who, out of tradition, set out to deny basic rights uh, to American people. Now we've had that to happen in the past: Strom Thurmond back in 1957 set the filibuster record against a civil rights bill, which was not even a bill, it was just a, a statement of policy. I don't think Joe, uh, Joe Manchin uh, would want to see that uh, for himself. So I am holding on to hope uh, that these two men will get together, and in the final analysis, will find a way for us to go forward with this legislation. We know. You know- that exceptions have been made for the budget. We call it reconciliation. Reconciliation is a term more aptly applied to constitutional issues than the budget. So I think in the name of reconciliation, we're going to get to where we need to be.
2: Well, you know, and, and hope is good, but but hope and, and strategy are two different things. I mean, there are groups in Georgia, voting rights groups, who are saying to the president and vice president, don't come down here. Without a plan, you, you are good friends with the president of the United States. You know, uh, Senator Harris very well. Do you know of a, of, a, of a plan that we aren't aware of that they have to actually make this happen? Because that's what the voting groups in Georgia are saying. Don't even come down here without an actual plan.
3: Well, the pro- the problem is to who will you submit the plan? Yes, there are plans. I have talked with your mention. And I do know that we've talked about these issues. Now, I do believe uh, that it is important to allow people room, space, as we like to call it, allow them to be able to deal with their own colleagues. You know, the Senate, there's 100 people sitting there. and What we're trying to do is get to 50% plus one. So let them have the space. I do believe there is a plan. In fact, I know uh, of the plan, and hopefully, uh, he will accept it. He hasn't yet. You, 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 well. you say
2: you you say that you've spoken with Joe Manchin. What evidence has he provided you that he actually cares about voting rights more than he cares about the filibuster?
3: Well, the first evidence was the fact that he took before the People Act HR one, he reworked it and came up with an approach that he thought would bring at least 10 Republicans to the table. That did not work. Now, it seems to me that he demonstrated good faith when he put forth that bill. And when he put it on the floor, 10 Republicans did not come along in order to bring it to a vote. So to me, that shows good faith. I think he will get to the point where he will see. Uh, that they are, in fact, uh, insulting him uh, by saying they're for it. And when he laid it out there, they didn't vote for it. So I think that's, right. that's what Schumann
2: has in mind. Uh, last question to you. the The King holiday is coming up. If, in fact, Joe Manchin does not budge and continues to stand by the filibuster and wrap his arms around that more than voting rights, is it not time for civil rights groups like the NAACP, for the groups that, are, that he's going to be looking to to convene with on MLK Day to, you know, to do his, the annual thing that politicians like to do, is it time for civil rights groups and organizations to, be, to condemn him as being akin to a modern-day Strom Thurmond?
3: Oh, absolutely. No question about that. Look. I have a long history here in South Carolina. Uh, I knew Strom Thurmond very well. His sister Gertrude and I uh, used to have desks next to each other when we worked in state government together. And so that didn't stop me from saying to Strom Thurmond, "I think you are off base, and you need to reckon with the truth." I will say the same thing here. I will join uh, with my colleagues in the NAACP and every other civil rights organization doing what is necessary uh, to call these people out.
2: Congressman Jim Clyburn, thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate your time tonight. Have a wonderful evening. And still ahead is living with COVID the new normal. Experts disagree. But if it is the new normal, what does that look like for you and your kids? We'll be right back. From Cancun Cruz to disappearing DeSantis, the Republicans sure do like to go AWOL during times of crisis. The Florida governor has since returned after vanishing for two weeks while Omicron ravaged his state. But he continues to show no remorse for his vanishing act, even as Florida set a new daily record today with more than 76,000 COVID cases. And now the same week that he blamed the federal government for a shortage of tests, The Grim Reaper of the South has confirmed that 800,000 to 1 million COVID test kits in the state stockpile recently expired without being used as lines for tests stretched for miles. Unless you're living under a rock, you know that COVID tests these days are getting price gouged up to $80 per test. They're like the pandemic version of my precious and not everyone gets to have one. But according to Baby Maga, no one even wanted them.
5: Having a stockpile was the right thing to do. I mean, if if we if we had done the opposite, we would have run out, and then had to order as people had done it. We just had a lack of demand uh, that that happened in September, October, November. Nobody was requesting them. Um, they would have been used, I think, had we had Omicron then.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Those words might have meant something in some alternate universe where the Florida governor prioritized Floridians' lives and wasn't turning his state into a covid oasis to integrate donors, to ingratiate himself to donors and the death cult base. But sadly, that is not the universe that we occupy. And because of Death Santos and his weird surgeon general, who's advocating for slowing down and even stopping testing, we're even deeper in this mess, forcing other leaders and scientists to up the ante on our covid response. That's what we're seeing in France, where President Emmanuel Macron is doubling down on his vow to piss off the unvaccinated. And in an extraordinary move, former members of Biden's advisory board of health experts during his transition have published articles in the Journal of the American Medical Association calling for him to adopt a new domestic pandemic strategy centered on the new normal of living with the virus indefinitely. In addition, they point out that achieving 90 percent population vaccination coverage will require mandates. This comes as President Biden's covid vaccine mandates go to the Supreme Court. And up next, we'll discuss what the conservative majority heard and what they seem poised to do to us next. As new COVID infections are hitting record highs nationwide, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments today challenging two Biden administration vaccine and testing mandates aimed at large employers as well as some healthcare providers. The two requirements would affect around 100 million workers. At issue is whether agencies like OSHA and HHS have the legal authority to impose such mandates. While the conservative justices expressed skepticism, liberal justices like Sonia Sotomayor argued that it was well within the government's purview.
4: What's the difference between this and telling employers where sparks are flying in the workplace,
1: your workers have to be wear a mask? When sparks are flying in the workplace, that's presumably because there's a machine that's unique to that workplace. That is the why is the human
4: being not like a machine if it's spewing a virus, bloodborne viruses.
2: And by the way, one of the people arguing against the vaccine mandates did so remotely because he had COVID. Joining me now is Melissa Murray, law professor at NYU and former clerk to Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, um, who I, I believe, uh, thank you so much for being here, Melissa. I believe that Sotomayor is emerging as the justice, as, as uh, the notorious RBG used to be. She's like the, the sort of voice of the people. Um, what do you make of her argument there that, you know, a, a person who's spewing a virus that's, that's airborne um, is like a machine that's dangerous in the workplace?
7: Well, I think she's making the very important point that COVID is very much like the dangerous machines that OSHA regularly regulates, and no one really bats an eye about it. Um, it, it is worth noting that not only was Benjamin Flowers, the Solicitor General of Ohio, and Elizabeth Merle, the Solicitor General of Louisiana, arguing remotely because they had tested positive for COVID, Justice Sotomayor decided to participate remotely as well. Nobody knows why, but I thought it was very interesting that Neil Gorsuch, who sits right beside her on the bench, chose to enter the oral argument without wearing a mask today as well. And so perhaps this little colloquy was more pointed than we even appreciated at the time.
2: It's so on brand, isn't it? Uh, let's listen to, uh, uh, speaking of on brand, here's Justice Samuel Alito floating the idea uh, of an administrative stay to the federal mandates. Here he is.
1: I just wanted to ask you a question uh, on this issue of the commencement of enforcement and the issuance of the stay. Uh, this ETS was issued a couple of months ago. It hasn't been enforced during that period. Uh, These cases arrived at this court just a short time ago. They present lots of difficult, complicated issues. We have hundreds of pages of briefing. We're receiving very helpful arguments this morning. Does the federal government object to our taking a couple of days, maybe, to think about this, to digest the arguments before people start losing jobs.
2: Uh, I'm not a lawyer, (laughs) Melissa, but this reminds me of sort of the weaselish way that they went at the Texas law where you could put bounties on women. They're like, yeah, we'll just let you get the bounties for a while and and let it sort of work its course through the world. Right. This sounds like a weaselly way of killing the mandates. Or am I wrong about that?
7: Well, I actually thought when we heard this from him, there were a number of eyebrows raised among those of us who follow the court because an administrative stay, if it was issued in the SB8 case, would have stopped the Texas law from going into effect and would have allowed people in Texas to continue enjoying the same constitutional rights that we enjoy elsewhere in the country. And so it seemed pretty rich for Justice Alito to be staking out the position that an administrative stay was fine in this context where there were important issues to be decided, but was not appropriate in that situation where there were unusual substantive and procedural issues to be determined.
2: Am I wrong in assuming that this 6-3 court, given who they are, are going to overturn these mandates and free COVID to work its way through the federal workforce?
7: Well, there were two mandates at issue here. One was the vaccination and testing mandate that OSHA promulgated. The other was the HHS mandate. I think it's more likely that the HHS mandate might get an easier time with this court. Um, They seem to be more amenable to that. But this OSHA mandate definitely got rough sledding. And I can't underscore enough the irony of that. Um, This was an institution who conducted oral arguments with strict COVID protocols that required vaccination and testing so it could protect its workers, including the nine justices. And they were debating whether or not the federal government can prescribe the same precautions for the rest of us. Uh,
2: but they're very important princes and they, they can't have the same rules as the rest of us. Let, let's go quickly to the uh, Ahmad Arbery murder trial. So we now have sentences that McMichaels, Travis and Gregory McMichael, got life without possibility of parole. Roddy Bryan, William Roddy Bryan, who's probably really regretting not copying a plea here, gets life with the possibility of parole. But because of the way, of the way Georgia law is written, parole cannot be considered for 30 years. Uh, Bryan is 52 years old, which means it's essentially life for him as well. Your thoughts on that sentence? Well,
7: I think the sentencing here really spoke to the importance and indeed the effect of victim impact statements. Um, I, I cannot underscore enough how moving and visceral the testimony of Ahmaud Arbery's family members were today, especially his mother, who spoke not only of the loss that she had suffered, but the further indignity of having her son vilified mm. by the defense lawyer during the course of that closing argument.
2: Yeah, indeed. OK, well, d- let's take a quick turn here, because today, sadly, we said goodbye to one of the nation's most dedicated civil rights lawyers and brightest scholars, Lonnie Guineer. Ms. Guineer became the first woman of color uh, tenured at Harvard Law School. As our friend Ellie Mastall wrote, there were few clearer voices about how to protect the rights of people of color in this country. Um, and Melissa, I wanted to give you a chance to just give us your thoughts on Lonnie Guineer and her impact in, in this world.
7: This is an incalculable loss. I did not have the privilege of learning from Professor Guineer, but like every other Black woman who came after her, we know that we walked a path that she blazed, and she was truly an amazing scholar and researcher, and. She showed us that even professional setbacks, um, when she was, for example, withdrawn as a nominee for a civil rights office in the Clinton administration, she used that setback to advance another academic theory about what democratic participation should look like. And again, she was a model for all of us. This is a terrible, terrible loss.
2: Yeah, indeed. Uh, she was a, an incredible woman. I did get a chance to meet her once and she was just such a, a smart sort of an interesting character who could explain the law in like very straightforward, simple terms that you could really understand and a huge advocate for voting rights. Um, just make, very quickly, I want to get you to also comment, given the fact that we are right now re- fighting again for voting rights, that loss to me feels deeper. I know Sherilyn Eiffel was tweeting about it today. Does it to you?
5: Well, I mean,
7: it does feel sort of the pregnancy of the moment is like her loss at a time when voting rights are under siege. She spent her entire career thinking about what it would mean for minorities to participate fully in the democratic process. And at a time when more and more states are thinking about ways to make it harder for communities that are already marginalized to participate in the democratic process, her voice will be sorely missed.
2: Yeah, indeed. Um, she, she was a, a truly, truly, truly great woman. Um, thank you very much, Melissa Murray. We really appreciate you being here this evening. Thank you very much. And coming up, legendary singer, UN Goodwill ambassador, and Twitter superstar Dionne Warwick joins us to share her memories of her dear friend and colleague, the late, great Sidney Poitier. Stay with us. Sidney Poitier, a towering figure who demanded respect both on screen and off, died today at the age of 94. He once said that as an actor, his primary goal was to portray black men of refinement, education, and accomplishment. And boy, did he do just that. He became the first black man to win an Academy Award for Best Actor for his role in Lilies of the Field, in which he plays an itinerant worker who encounters a group of East German nuns who believe he's been sent by God to build them a new chapel.
3: Because... It is a long journey to this moment. I am naturally indebted to countless numbers of people. In
2: 1967, he played a doctor engaged to a white woman who introduces him to her parents for the first time in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. The film was considered radical at the time for its portrayal of an interracial romance and marked the first time a white actress and a black actor kissed on screen. Some movie theaters in the South refused to show it. This is one of the most memorable scenes from the film in which he and his character's father diverge.
3: But you think of yourself as a colored man. I think of myself as a man.
2: Poitier starred in roughly 30 films, including The Defiant Ones, A Raisin in the Sun, and To Sir with Love. And many more. Poitier's starring roles helped reshape America's image of a powerful leading man. And his work helped open doors for black actors who followed. And yet, his most powerful role was as a civil rights activist. He was one of several celebrities who took part in the March on Washington in 1963. In 2009, President Obama awarded Poitier the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The proud Bahamian's death was confirmed by the island's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And joining me now is award-winning singer, television host, activist, and friend of the late Sidney Poitier, Dionne Warwick. Uh, Ms. Dionne, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, You tweeted out today a really wonderful story about meeting Mr. Poitier (laughs) and asking for his autograph. (laughs) Please, first of all, the idea of you wanting to get anyone's autograph because you're so incredible, but please tell us that story. I was
6: just leaving my recording session and walking up Broadway to get to my car. And I spotted Sidney Poitier walking up Broadway. So I, I basically stalked him. <laughs> I did. And then finally he stopped long enough to, to catch me. And he turned around and says, little girl, what is it that you want? And I said, I'd uh, but but do, you know, it was like, my God, I'm speaking to me. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, he was one of my very special people in my life.
2: What was he like as a person? I never got the privilege to meet him. I, he was one of my mom's on-screen boyfriends, by the way. He and Harry Belafonte <laughs> were like the two people she had the biggest crushes on him, Muhammad Ali. What was he like as a person?
6: Uh, oh, he was such a gentleman. i true gentleman and, um, kind and he loved to laugh. Um, he was, I don't know, you know, he was a complete man.
2: I, I love the way you say that because I mean, at the time when he was doing these groundbreaking films, it was still a struggle for black men to not only not be, you know, to be a leading man. That was sort of unheard of until he and Mr. B came <laughs> along. Um, But also to be, you know, to be treated as, as men, as human beings in this country. We still have some issues with that now. But what do you think that the importance of him standing in that space was?
6: Oh, what? a role model i mean to see someone of his stature and being as denzel recognized you know um he epitomized what i think every female in the world (laughs) would want to have at her side he was just perfect that's the only word that comes to mind (laughs)
2: No, he was beautiful. I mean, he was such a handsome man. And, do you, do you know, he yeah. was also such a great civil rights activist and he cared so much about the community. Talk a little bit about how important it was for people of his stature to step out um, during the 1960s when it was risky um, for, for, for one's career to take those kinds of stands. Yeah, but, you know, when, when people realize
6: he very much like when E.F. Hutton (laughs) speaks when Sidney Poitier spoke. I mean, he was revered, was trusted, which was very important. And uh, he dotted his eyes across the cheese.
2: Yeah. And the story about meeting him for the first time really is wonderful. But did you have a a favorite memory uh, of, of Mr. Poitier?
6: Oh, my. Ooh, so many. <laughs> um, the, you know, the one thing I do remember vividly is the fact that whenever I don't care where it was or what we were there for. My greeting was was not Hi Dion. It was, hey, little girl, you want my autograph? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's I how absolutely me. love that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, I absolutely yeah. love that. Condolences on the loss of your dear friend. And um, you're an icon. So I'm just appreciative of you giving us a few minutes of your time. The great Dion Warwick. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I love you, Joy. I really do. Anytime. <laughs> Don't make me cry. OK, <laughs> I will talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Hopefully I'm just actually like, oh, I'll just call you and talk to you later. Thank you so much, Miss Dion Warwick. <laughs> Appreciate you. And that is tonight's readout.
1: When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays. Video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts.
0: Lots of news of all kinds going on right now.
1: And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.